turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 37, if you would, please. Brother Vaughn in here. Wow. <laughs> Wanted to catch him at lunch, ended up on the phone, but um, wow. It is really helpful to have something that you know is true laid out so clearly and to see the full gamut. You see all these verses about the conscience and you know that it affects your ministry, it affects your life, and you know the importance of having a clear conscience, but you just see that laid out. And at the end, then to see those principles about how it then positively impacts your life when that conscience is clear, it's really encouraging to see. And I'm encouraged that uh, you guys respond so well to messages like that. I want to set this message in the backdrop of the impossible. There is some method to the Spirit of God's, I shouldn't say madness, there's method to my madness sometimes, but the Spirit of God does direct, and Brother Vaughn and I have been asking each other, you know what you're preaching next? No, I really don't know. What are you preaching next? And um, I think the Lord has led us. But, you know, you come to this point in this week, and you really don't want those you minister to, do, to, to walk away with something they really needed. As a preacher, you don't want to miss something that God wants you to give those that you're preaching to. And where I'm coming from, we know we talked about the fact that sin, sin's a big deal, but God's mercy is very real. It is effective if we will get honest with him. And uh, this matter of resting, constantly trying to bend God to line up with what we think or what we have our minds made up is true. Instead of letting God rest us, bend us, and mold us, and shape us, and fashion us after him, then setting a vision, knowing that we're walking with him, and he's moving us, and molding us, and shaping us, setting a vision for what God can do. All I can tell you is not everything's going to go the way you think it's going to go. And I don't want you to be discouraged by that at all. You know, we, we almost jokingly say sometimes it doesn't tend to occur to young preachers when they become pastors that not everybody's going to love them. Not everybody's going to think they're the most wonderful thing that walked into their church or into their lives. Evangelists don't have that problem. Everybody loves an evangelist when they come, <laughs> except the ones I seem to have, so maybe it's just my church, I don't know. <laughs> Ministry can be challenging. And there's going to be times, and this isn't really a negative message, but there's going to be times you're going to wake up in the morning as God leads you to a partner for life, and you're going to think, what did I just do? I don't even like her. I know God told me I have to love her, but man, just, this, isn't, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. You realize there's a lot of marriages falling apart among good Christian people because they can't get through the trial, they can't believe God for what seems like the impossible. I'm learning more and more that God wants us to 
in a sense, live there where we have an ongoing consciousness. Lord, this isn't going to work unless you do something. This isn't going to happen unless you move in and stir. I will probably say something about this tomorrow evening. Still wrestling a little bit with that, but I think I have the mind of the Lord on tomorrow night. But many of you know that our ministry went through a flood eight and a half years ago. Now it was 2008. And when you're staying there looking at a ministry with water above the door frames in the lower level of your facility and everything is damaged, you know that God has to move. You have no money. You have no insurance for that sort of thing. You know God's got to move. And the reason I sometimes mention that to young people like you is that was a turning point in my life. Embarrassing to say, that was only eight years ago. I'd been in ministry 32 years at that point. But it's a turning point in my life whereby I really dared to believe that what I was preaching was actually true. That God can do the impossible. So I have you in that passage that you're very familiar with, the Valley of Dry Bones. And I hesitate to say this. I'm not going to be too careful with all the context. We we know somewhat of the situation. And I, I don't think I'm doing any injustice to the Word of God. The imagery of this passage tends to capture our attention. We've got a valley just full of dead bones. And God brings Ezekiel to this place and says, I want you to look at the dead bones. I want you to think about it. And in my mind, this could be our nation, but that's not really what I'm thinking about this afternoon. I've thought about it in light of our nation. I've preached from this passage from that perspective. And in my mind, I think of our churches, and I preached to a pastor's fellowship from this passage, and I focused on our churches because sometimes we look at our churches and we wonder, what is it going to do to get these folks stirred and on fire for God? And you can think about that if you want to, but uh, I want you to think about something in your life that just seems like it's just absolutely not possible. And if you don't need the message today, Hang on, you will. All right, so get the principles down and remember. But we see in this passage of Scripture, first of all, a hopeless condition. In verses 1 and 2, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says, and carried me out into a, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were mi- very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry, very many and very dry, the hopeless condition. This passage, in effect, invites us to join Ezekiel and the Lord in a valley that was full of dead bones. The second verse, God causes Ezekiel to pass by those bones round about. Then we are given two describing phrases about the bones. First of all, God says, there's a lot of them. And secondly, God says they are very dry. There's nothing in this passage in light of what we see in these first verses that give us any indication that anything good can come of the dead, dry bones. 
They're there. They're a reality. Something happened. Bones tell a story. But they're dead. There's many of them, and they're very dry. Whatever happened, life was taken from the individuals. In verse 7, we're told that the bones were not in any way connected, but instead scattered about the valley. In verse 8, we are told that there is no skin or sinew upon the bones. And in verse 9, we are told that the bones belong to people who were slain. So we have here a description of what I would consider total helplessness, a hopeless, helpless condition. There's nothing about the condition of the bones that would cause an onlooker to have any hope for them. Verse 11 states, Behold, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. There are times in your life, and there's times perhaps in the near future, perhaps right now, where God brings people into your life, or He brings circumstances into your life, and there's even an acknowledgement. I've got a couple of situations going on in our church right now, and from a human perspective, I'm thinking as those people have come to me, they basically are throwing up their hands and they're saying, there's no hope if we are going to be in ministry, we have, have to learn how to give people hope. Not a superficial hope, not a false hope. Years ago, I had a man walk into my office, previous ministry, and he sat down and he said, I heard you do counseling. And he named the institutions where he'd been for counseling. He's on his fifth marriage, and he said, she's about ready to leave me. He said, what is wrong with all these women anyway? <laughs> I sat there and looked at him, never said a word. I may have smiled, I might have smirked. He said, it's me, isn't it? Started addressing the real issues, and all of a sudden he doesn't show up for an appointment. Comes back a couple of weeks later, he's got his shirt open in front, he's got this great big gold chain, and I said, and I'll bet you you got a brand new car out in the parking lot, don't you? He said, how'd you know? I said, you went to another counselor, didn't you? He said, yeah. They said, just buy some new clothes, get a new car, and everything will be okay. Folks, I'm telling you, we've got to have more hope than that. We've got to have something else that we can turn people to and point them to. And as our country gets further and further away from God and the principles of God's Word, we need to become more and more confident that God does work. And His Word is true. And it is helpful. So there is a very hopeless condition. As we join Ezekiel in this valley of dry bones... I want us to consider our role to be similar to that of Ezekiel's. God brought him here, and he said, look, we got a problem. Ezekiel's looking at it, he's thinking, we've got a problem. Israel is speaking, as it were, and they say, we've got a problem. We're dry, we're dead. We're scattered about. I want us to bow our heads before the Lord, ask him to help us see how we can breathe hope and life into that which is hopeless. Father, I pray that you would help us to comprehend the truth of your word. Give me your grace and wisdom, direction, the power of your spirit, his leading in the things that I say that would be helpful to these young people and pertinent to their lives today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We understand that in this valley, Ezekiel's the one that's alive, do we not? 
His bones are connected. He's got flesh on his bones. He's got life in his body, but he's facing an impossible situation. So we have this hopeless, helpless condition, but we have then a probing question in verse 3. And he said unto me, the Spirit of God, the hand of the Lord leading him, said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? There's a couple of folks, facts I want us to notice about that question. First of all, the question is specific. And I want us to get a hold of this if we can. Ezekiel is in the valley. Ezekiel is by these bones. And he didn't say, do the bones over in the next valley, do, will they live? He said, Ezekiel, can these bones live? God is speaking about a specific circumstance in a specific place. Every one of us here have a kingdom, we have a sphere of influence, we have a responsibility. You may have a bus ministry, you may have a children's ministry, you may be actively involved in some other type of outreach or some teaching ministry, and there are times that you are there ministering the Word of God, and you're thinking, what is it going to take for God to move in and move upon these people? It's your place. God is basically saying to Ezekiel, these dead, dry, scattered bones are your responsibility. What do you think, Ezekiel? Can they live? And I'm asking you about that circumstance you're facing. I've got to believe that in this crowd, there's some that have some horrendous things, perhaps in the home, in the family. Some of you face some things in ministry. Some of you personal sin struggles in your life. You just find yourself wondering, is anything ever going to change? These bones. Not Pastor Zemple's dead dry bones that he has to deal with in his ministry, the bones that you're dealing with. Can they live? Can these bones live? It was a very specific question. They were specific bones. They were in a specific place. They were bones that were visible to Ezekiel. God is asking about this helpless, hopeless condition. His servant sees where his servant is. So I'm asking you to consider the helpless, hopeless situation you see. Is there any hope for these bones? That's what God is asking. Secondly, concerning this question... Notice Ezekiel's response is a proper one. <laughs> Lord, you know. There's times I wish I would have responded that way when I'm sometimes pondering things, turning my vision right back to God and saying, God, you know. You know what you want to do. You know what you can do. You know what you hope to do. I wish I had time to tell you about the people that have come and gone in our ministry. And what one of the privileges of being in a church for a period of time is you get to see things come and go. You get to see the ebb and flow. I was counting through our ministry role and basically what I do anymore on Sunday morning. I sit on the platform and my eyes are just scanning the audience and I find myself just absolutely stirred and amazed with what God has brought into our church got people that have been there for 50 years. We've got people that are brand new that Sunday, and it's been that way for weeks and weeks, months now. We have people that have just recently been saved. We have people that have been saved a long time. We have people that have very little education. We have people that own their own businesses. 
And I scan across that auditorium and I'm thinking, God, look what you have done here. This is amazing. But one of the things that I notice is the people that have come back. People that have been absolutely torqued at me or the ministry. I remember one couple specifically, and they showed up on a a Sunday, and I may have told this story before, but uh, they showed up, and I was really surprised to see them because they were irritated with me, and they were more irritated with my wife. And those aren't fun, fun experiences. You try not to overreact, because I always have seen over the years that if you don't cause a greater rift, a greater offense that many times God will work in their heart and bring them back. And they showed up one Sunday morning and everybody was friendly to them, including me and my wife. They thought, that's weird. They came back Sunday night. They said, this has to be weird. They had a really bad attitude. They'd gone through our Christian school and just had a bad attitude. Came back Sunday night and they thought, man, the people are friendly here. They're nice to us. We expected they'd be judgmental. In fact, that was the accusation they made. They were so surprised they came back Wednesday night. They've been coming every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night since. And I said, what brought you back? They said, we had to swallow our pride. We realized the problem was us, not you. I said, it's amazing what you learn after you make a few mistakes and reap a few consequences. My wife is better at this than I am. She puts me to shame and many of us to shame, but she will pray for years. She's got a prayer list. I don't know how many names she has on it. Just praise and praise and praise. And those people show back up. We just had a couple in the last two weeks show back up in church. It's like, where did these people come from? They don't even like us. One person come back, I said, why are you coming back? I've not changed my position. I believe the same thing. But she said, yes, but I know you'll tell me the truth. And she just stands there and smiles at me. (laughs) I said, you got that right. (laughs) The probing question, the impossible situation. But thirdly, the reviving action. God has Ezekiel's attention. There's dead bones. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel's saying, I've got to, I, you know, I'm kind of interested in see what you're going to say, God. God, you know. He puts it back on him. God, God, you tell me. And as God has Ezekiel's attention, he tells Ezekiel what he can do about these dead bones three times. God tells Ezekiel to preach, to speak forth, prophesy. Notice what Ezekiel is to preach to bring these bones back to life. First of all, he is to preach. In verse 4, again he said unto me, prophesy unto these dead bones. And say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I believe there's significance. I, I chewed on this, and this has been several years ago, and Some of the things aren't as fresh in my mind as I wish they perhaps were today, but he said, hear the word of the Lord. I I believe that what God tells Ezekiel to prophesy is in some regard a formula or instruction to us of what it takes to bring that which is hopeless and helpless back to a place where it's useful. Don't you ever, sometimes, sometimes it is so easy in a Bible college to take the word of God for granted. 
And, and I know there's a sense of revival and there's a sense of expectation here, but I just feel obligated to stand before you this afternoon and tell you that the Word of God works. The Word of God is indeed what God said it is. It is quick and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It does pierce the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart because before God, all things are open and naked before Him with whom we have to do. God knows what we need. And the Word of God is what gets it done. We are facing a culture, even in some of our more conservative churches, where we are leaving off with preaching the Word of God. You, you listen to me, young people, because preachers aren't even convinced it works anymore. Entertainment seems to be more result-oriented. But God's the one that said, my Word does not return void. So it is our job, it's our responsibility that when people come and, and I get on rabbit trails here and I don't want to get myself too distracted and want to be respectful of the time, but you listen, we've, we've got books and books are good and they're helpful and it's important to read and it's important to learn. But listen to me, you have to be very careful with your filter and look at the Word of God because books are directing God's people to believe things that God never said. And in the end, we have got to make sure, and one of the biggest battles that I fight in ministry is talking to people that are struggling and wrestling, and they're in this hopeless and helpless situation. And the first thing I have to do is clear away all the rubbish of false counsel and well-meaning and well-intended Christian friends who are telling them opinions from their, their life or opinions from their experience or opinions from books that they have read, but never have thought to open up the Word of God and look at them and say, Thus saith the Lord, if you want an answer for the problem, in your life, you've got to look to the Word of God. It's going to be where the answer is found. Paul said to Timothy, preach the Word. Paul said to the Corinthians, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Psalms 40 verse 9 says, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. In the Old Testament, over and over, we read uh, among the prophets, thus saith the Lord. Over 400 times, I want to say 413, I just looked it up and promptly forgot it because I'm old and you can forgive me for that. But over 400 times, God says, thus saith the Lord. It is time to shout, stop sharing and time to stop suggesting and time to stand up with a gracious and loving spirit and tell our people, thus saith the Lord. And when they come to us one-on-one, -on -one, it's time to look at them and say, it doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what you think. But look at right here. Read that verse. What does this say? Husbands love your wives. Are you? Well, thus saith the Lord. Isaiah said in Isaiah 61.1, not only speaking of his ministry, but prophetically of the Lord's ministry, the Lord hath anointed me to preach. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2, he was to go and to preach to that great city of Nineveh. Jeremiah said, I am no more going to speak in God's name, but the word of God was in me, a fire, and I could not refrain, I could not be silent, he had to preach. 
John the Baptist came preaching. Jesus Christ went about the villages and cities preaching the gospel. Christ sent out his disciples and said to them, As ye go, preach. Christ said to his disciples, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. Christ commanded to the church that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In verse 20 of the same chapter, we are told that the disciples went forth and preached everywhere. Over 50 times in the book of Acts, God's people preached in Romans 10, 14, except we preach. People are not going to be helped. And obviously we know we're supposed to be preaching the word of God. Over 50 times in Paul's epistles, he said, preach. God honors the foolishness of preaching. It's our responsibility to make sure that when we preach, it is the word of God that we are declaring. Secondly, I want you to notice in verses 9 and 10, God says to him again, prophesy. Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. Same word that's used in Genesis in reference to the breath of God. I find myself, and sometimes I do stuff and then start thinking afterward and wonder if my theology is right or not. But it was a few years ago now, five or six years ago in this ministry and the auditorium of this ministry during a victory conference that God burdened my heart for the city of Martinsville. And I began to pray for Martinsville and all I could do was weep. And that hadn't happened for a long time. And I'm not saying that there is exactly or specifically or directly a connection because a lot of things were going on in my life at that time, but God burdened me again. And it's about that time we were looking at starting the church in Bloomington. And I went in Andy Gashke's office, and every once in a while we'd just pray, and one day I was praying, and all I could do is weep for the souls in Martinsville. But really the bottom line and the real issue was this, that the Spirit of God, and I pray this, that the Spirit of God would move upon the face of the waters again. In Genesis, when God created, it was when the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters that there was life. And I'm asking in Martinsville that God's spirit would move upon the face of the waters, theologically correct or not. God knows what, he mean, what I mean, and God knows what's in my heart. I am saying, bring life back to this city again. Bring life back to the people of this city again. Bring life back to those that used to be in church but aren't in church anymore. Bring life back to this community. You move upon this community. Do something that I can't do. That life again and consciousness of God would be a reality in this community. Listen, dead bones can take on flesh and form, but they have no life without the Spirit of God. God said to Ezekiel, Thus saith the Lord, Unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live, verse 5. And I will lay sinew upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath into you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and there was a noise, behold, a shaking, and and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld to the sinews and the flesh came, uh, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, 
and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. And we can do a lot more with this than I'm going to take time, but God had already promised it, had he not? I just read, he said, I'm going to put breath in them. But now he says to Ezekiel, he says, okay, so you start prophesying. Prophesy unto the wind. Thus saith the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. The flesh, the sinew, the bones had come back together with a great noise and a clamoring and a clattering. But except God's people believe the promise of God, that the Spirit of God breathes life into people, there's not going to be any life. Let's just make this real practical for a while. How many of you teach Sunday school or some type of ministry? You do some type of teaching ministry. How many of you have some kind of an evangelism ministry? You go out, pastors watching, seeing how many of you go out and try to knock on doors and tell somebody about Jesus Christ? You ever do that? How many of you have a bus ministry? How many of you have a Spanish ministry? And there's a lot of other ministries, music ministry. Do you understand that music has no life without the Spirit of God? See, we can have all the right form and shape, but we've got to have the Spirit of God. We've got to have Him move upon that which we are ministering to. So I prophesied as I was commanded, verse 10. Breath came on into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. All right, we're done. The bones came together, the sinew, the flesh, the skin is upon them. I've preached and the breath of God is in them. They have life. We're done. No, a third time. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, verse 12, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. I know I'm taking liberty here, but I am God's child. The ministries that God has given us, are ordained by God, directed by God, surrendered to God, dedicated to God. And I want us to understand without belaboring it too much that except we have the resurrection in view, we are going to waste time. We are not going to have a sense of earnestness and we are not going to stay focused. Listen, it matters what you do today. It matters what you do this week. It matters how you walk into your classrooms this Sunday. It matters how you go out on bus visitation this weekend. It matters how you sit in that bus and interact with those kids. It matters because eternity is coming. There is a mindset of eternity that has paralyzed our churches. I've been dealing with it since the 70s. The Lord is coming back. Don't worry about the debt. The Lord is coming back. Don't have any vision. The Lord is coming back. No point in moving forward. And I've heard that over and over and over again. Our ministry is now being threatened with Interstate 69. And one of the drawings shows it going right through the middle of our auditorium, right down our property. And one man in our church said, it's no big deal. God will come back before that interstate ever gets built. I hope he does, but I'm not counting on it. I hope that doesn't seem like blasphemy. I've heard it for over 40 years. Yes, the Lord's coming back. We better live like he is, but we best occupy till he comes. 
And as God gives us one more day and he gives us one more breath and he gives us one more opportunity to preach a sermon and one more occasion to interact with one of the children in our classroom and one more time to talk to that teenager, as God gives us one more time, we better understand that he is coming again and these people need to be prepared and we need to be prepared and we want to stand before him unashamed. There's a resurrection coming. That verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is pretty important because it's after God talking about the certainty of the resurrection and after Paul says, if there's no resurrection, everything we do is in vain. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That is set in the context of the resurrection. There's a day coming when we are going to stand before God. There's a day coming when those we minister to are going to stand before God. There is a day coming when it's going to be forever too late for those that we had an opportunity to talk to. One of the things that will always grieve my heart is all the opportunities I've missed and all the occasions whereby I could have told somebody about Jesus Christ, but I never did. Eternity is coming. Christ is returning. There is a resurrection, but some unto life and some unto eternal condemnation. How dare we walk into a Sunday school classroom unprepared? How dare we sit on a bus with some children whose souls are at stake? And have no consciousness that today might be the day that God is going to move in one of their hearts and perhaps just the way that I greet them, perhaps just the way that I treat them, perhaps just the attitude I show toward them is the very thing that will prepare their heart to hear the Word of God. How dare we stand up and sing a song, sing a special. I heard Brother Dan Van Gelderen talking to the choir last night. I think it was, he said, listen, you are preparing people's hearts to hear the Word of God. Eternity's coming, and someday it's going to be forever too late. The power of the resurrection. In other words, the point of preaching the Word of God. In other words, the point of pleading that the power of the Spirit of God would move upon the face of the waters of dead, lifeless beings is that they'd be ready for eternity. What's the point if they die and go to hell anyway? What's the point? If we live our lives with vision, if we capture that purpose that God has for us, we must access the power of God's Spirit. We must be faithful to preach the Word of God. We must live in light of the fact that the resurrection is coming. Notice verse 23. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. I understand the prophecy of it and the significance of it to Israel. And I would, I would take probably 15 minutes in this message to have explained why we can take this passage and apply it to our lives, but I think you guys understand. God has a desire 
that not any perish, but that all come to repentance. God has a desire that people be his people, that they know him, that they live for him, that they set aside their sin and their disobedience and honor him with their lives. Most of you have heard James Elliott's statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And probably many of you here are familiar that that statement was made in light of a surrender in 1948, whereby he cried out to God, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life. And may I burn for thee, consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. I tell you what, some of us are just too wrapped up in ourselves. And James Elliott was impressed with that reality that if his life was going to matter, he had to provision his life as a candlestick that was on fire for God. God got to determine how long that candlestick would burn, but his desires that would burn for him that God would use his life for his glory. Father, I pray that you would help your people here today to recognize there is hope in a world that seems so far away from you, so dead, so lifeless. There is hope for that consuming issue that we face that seems impossible. There is hope that the word of God would cause that life, that circumstance, to take form and shape again. Take form and shape in a way that you designed it to be and created it to be, but lest the Spirit of God move, it'll still be lifeless and dead. Father, may we be your vessels, may we be your servants like Ezekiel that see these bones in our realm of influence, in our sphere of responsibility. And have confidence to come before you and say, God, you know. But that we would then faithfully declare your word. Plead the power and the moving of your spirit. And live with the focus of the reality and certainty of the resurrection. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.